Join me, Harriet Gould, for the Lab Matters podcast to hear fascinating stories every week from the inspiring people behind the science. The next episode is for you if you want to find out what racing, driving, marine biology and fencing have in common. Spoiler alert, it may be my next guest, Dr. Diane Turner. Hi, Diane. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, Today we've got Dr. Diane Turner, Fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry, author, trainer, consultant and entrepreneur. Now, um, which sounds like quite a lot, really, but um, I have to tell you, that's not the half of it. Um, so, um, Diane, you've, you've done an awful lot. And as I said, I haven't really scratched the surface with that introduction. Um, and you, you graduated from Warwick University with, with a master's degree in analytical chemistry. But that that's sort of like the halfway point and there's so much that happened before then I wouldn't mind if you could just take us back to 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 where it all began because um I I don't think in total there are many people born on the Isles of Scilly is that right? That's right yeah so it's about I've got a population of around 2,000 people spread across five islands so it is very very tiny. Wonderful um so you were born on the Isles of Scilly and um you had a you went to primary school there. You basically lived the the island life. Well, the Isles of Scilly is off the end of Land's End in Cornwall, so 28 miles. So that makes it further away than France is, so, um, which we're quite proud of, of course. And, um, yeah, so we I went to primary school on the Isles of Scilly and then also secondary school. So there are four primary schools on the Isles of Scilly, um, but, and people have, live across five islands. So from one of those islands, not one of the ones that I lived on, uh, they went to school every day on the boat which is very exciting um I'm from the biggest island St Mary's and there we had a secondary school and the only secondary school in the Isles of Scilly so when I was there all the children from the other islands then came on a Monday morning which meant that we started school slightly later on a Monday uh they boarded during the week and then they went home again on Friday afternoon so we finished school slightly earlier on a Friday afternoon to enable that to happen although when there was a bit of storms in the winter it didn't always happen that way but it's a little bit of flexible school times depending on the time of year and and the children who were going. Mm -hmm. But and it wasn't immediately obvious that science was going to be the route that you went down um, because your parents weren't necessarily academic and they they hadn't studied in in the field and it, it wasn't a known subject necessarily. Absolutely. I mean, my father is Salonian, so he's born and bred on the Isles of Scilly, and my mum is from St Ives in Cornwall, um, and she moved there. Um, they both left school at age 15. My father became a shipwright, um, learning how to fix boats, and then he was also a boatman, so he went to work for the local vet, vet who looked after the wildlife in the Isles of Scilly at the time, and that was then taken over by the Niche Conservancy Council, which was then also Natural England and English Nature, um, and he, my whole life, he, he, he worked for basically looking after the wildlife. Um, my mum, she um, worked in a hotel as a receptionist and tied flowers during the summer. So the Isles of Scilly isn't very well known for science. Um, it's based really around farming, especially flower farming in the winter and tourism in the summer and, of course, fishing as well. So there's not really many or any jobs that you can really do in science at all. 
Mm -hmm. um, I was quite lucky though, because my father looking after the wildlife, um, we did have people coming over from the mainland, from universities to actually study different aspects of the wildlife on Scilly. So for example, um, the marram grass, the um, sand dunes, the butterflies, and um, birds as well, and of course also underwater. So the the um, the Zostra marina, which is the only flowering plant that lives under the green sea, which is commonly known as seagrass. So I did have that bit of influence. So I did my first official marine survey age, aged eight. So looking at the Zostra marina, looking and measuring the length of it and everything from the survey work. And when I started scuba diving at the age of 14, so that was the youngest you could you could scuba dive, I was really interested in marine biology, of course, at the time. And then from um, once I got my qualifications, that's year I started going back and doing the survey work on the seagrass, as well as sediment surveys and looking at um, Devonshire cup corals and, and all the jewel anemones and everything else that, that um is abundant on the Isles of Scilly. So um, I'm working with my father, which was very, very exciting. And I really enjoyed that. So he was involved in the marine surveys from the 1970s all the way through to actually only a few years ago. So even after retiring, he was still involved with them because he knows all the every single rock and every single area on the Isles of Scilly that is abundant in marine life. So that was kind of my influence on the science side. Yeah. And I mean, I suppose it's not necess not necessarily a given that anyone's going to go to university um, wherever they wherever they come from. Um, but you had a, a particular teacher, is that right? That thought okay. different about you. Absolutely. So uh, my teacher, Mrs. Ottery, who was my second teacher at primary school. So she told my mum that I would go to university and my mum said, don't be so ridiculous. That probably won't happen because uh, none of my family had ever been to university. And actually they haven't, none of my family's ever been to university since either so they've kind of gone more vocational sort of um of work um and and careers so yeah so so she was a I guess quite a, an underlying um it had quite an underlying impact really um I think how I got into chemistry though is still a little bit unsure about because I was heavily into marine biology at school and all I can think of is that um so we had so our secondary school had a, had a total of 110 students in it across the five years and um we only had two science teachers one who's a physicist and one who was a biologist so chemistry was taught between both of those so I and I think I got very interested in chemistry because it was in both of those worlds of physics and biology being taught by both of those. And I could really see how it was very central in everything. And I got very, very interested at the down at the, the molecular scale and elements and atoms and molecules, but also then at the, the much, much bigger, bigger scale as well. So, um, yeah, so that, you know, when I went to go and do my A-levels, I decided to do Spanish because I really enjoyed French at school, but um, we couldn't study Spanish at us, very, very small school. So I decided to do Spanish from scratch at A-level. Um, I did chemistry and I also did maths, but we couldn't, I couldn't do those um, on the Isles of Scilly. There's no schooling um, post 16. So I had to move to the mainland um, and I was fortunate enough because my mum was from St. Ives in Cornwall. My grand still lived there. So I went to live with her for two years to then do my A-levels at Penwith College in Penzance. And that was very scary because on my first day I had to catch a bus. 
and I've never caught a bus before. I've caught helicopters and planes and boats, but never a bus before. And of course, everyone, you know, who's very small in the Isles of Scilly, so everyone knew if you're coming, they would hold it for you and wait for you, but the bus wouldn't wait. So that was very, very nerve wracking. Wow, it sounds, it just sounds, it's so, un, it's so the opposite of what a lot of other people experience, isn't it? That, um, you, perfectly used to catching a helicopter but but a bus was a uh, whole new territory um, Absolutely. Or, or a train as well trains are quite scary as well yeah <laughs> <laughs> so you 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 did your a-levels you obviously went through those um with the uh, with flying colors and and then it was time to look at university options absolutely so why did i choose more at university <laughs> quite simply because um my boyfriend, um, who I'd met through the air training corps, um, which I had joined when I moved to the mainland to do my A-levels, um, he went to Warwick University. And I went up and saw the university from the other side, from the students' union side of it. Really enjoyed it. Went to, of course, you know, you went to the open days. It's a little bit difficult, but um, I went to the open days for other universities as well to have a look around. But I really saw both sides of Warwick University, so the the socialising student side of it, as well as the the uh, yeah, the chemistry etc. So um, that was one of the main reasons, but also because it was a campus university and coming from a very small island, um, having that close knit community as well was really you know kind of really important to me. Where it was, how far away it was. I mean, everything is far away from the Isles of Scilly, so that didn't really matter. And um, whereas everybody else had their parents collecting them to and from at the end of terms, etc., I was treated more like an overseas student. So I couldn't carry my things down on the train. So I used to stay usually about half of half the Christmas holidays and Easter holidays to study. Um, and then left everything in storage in halls um, and then just caught the train home and then of course the helicopter in the winter back to the Isles of Scilly um, to spend one or two weeks with my family. Wow it's it's yeah it's uh it's an eye-opening it's an eye-opening experience listening to you even never mind actually doing it um so tell me how tell me how you felt when you graduated yeah, I was really excited when I graduated. So again, you know, my parents were very, very proud. They both came up, of course. Um, and actually, they kind of like throughout my my staying at university, they took the opportunity to come and visit other parts of the country, um, which they didn't get to do very, very often, just, you know, just once a year. But it was, yeah, it was really nice to kind of show them around and, and everything. So very, very exciting. And they were very, very excited for me. I was also very excited because I won um, the final year project the best final year project on my course um so the Andrew McCamley uh, prize and I'd also been promised that there was funding available for me to continue that into doing a PhD if I wanted to which is also very exciting um it's in organic synthesis so an area that I was very interested in and the project I've done it my, my brother actually was born with a hole in his heart and he had to have open heart surgery when he was um nine years old and then um when I was at university, he actually had a pig's valve put in, etc. as well. So actually, um, my my project was actually on glycolipid analogues and their influence um basically with with um heart transplants from, from other animals like pigs. So that was really, really close to home. And I was very, very interested in that and so very, very excited to be continuing that work. So um throughout university, I had 
worked basically to earn enough money to live. Um, and I worked in the students' union, which of course, you know, one of the main reasons of going to Warwick University. Um, and, but in the summers, I've made the, taken the opportunity of the longer summers to actually go off traveling um, and work overseas. So I did uh, BUNAC, so the British University's North American Club, and um, which then gives you a visa to go and work um, in, in, um, in the States. So I spent my first summer at university uh, working in Massachusetts at a fun park for two months and then a month's traveling um, before I went back to university. And I'd done that, you know, the second year I did it in Vancouver. And again, so there I worked in a riding stables and breeding farm because I'd done a lot of horse riding growing up in the Isles of Scilly um, and also even got to the point of running the, the local stables as well at one point for a summer. And um, so, yeah, so that was quite exciting. But my third summer when I was graduating, I actually went off um, and I hitchhiked from Alaska to Central America. So about 7000 miles, which was very exciting. And um, yeah, so I came back from that to find out that PhD funding had fallen through. Oh, and I signed a contract on my house and everything. So I was like, oh my God, what am I going to do? Um, but fortunately, because I'd worked at the Student Union, there was lots of jobs there. So they said, keep working there. And the university offered also offered me a, a master's in analytical chemistry, which I thought, great, of doing organic synthesis, I need to analyze what I make. So it's gonna be really, really good for kind of that backup, but I didn't realize how much I would enjoy it. Um, so, and I really enjoyed my, my master's in analytical chemistry, so much so actually it was a six month taught and six month project. And I was fortunate enough to be the only person, well, I was fortunate enough to get a my, my project actually out in industry. So I worked at Gellert Hill Research Station Mm -hmm. um for my project which at the time was Zeneca agrochemicals which um of course is now syngenta and from the end at the end of that i had again more offers of phds which was i kind of given it up a little bit on those at the time but i also had two job offers so one of those to stay there and also a second one to go and start an applications laboratory for an instrument supplier um in cambridge which i thought you know it's not very often you get the opportunity to start your own lab so I grasped that opportunity and thought, yeah, OK, let's go for it. Um, they weren't quite ready for me to start. So um, I actually continued on doing my marine biology, which I still very much enjoy. I went off to the Philippines for three months to live on a nice little island and survey the coral reefs to then make marine protected areas. So and then came back and started my job in Cambridge. What a little whirlwind. Um, what little is probably the wrong word, actually. Um, <laughs> But tell, tell me what you said you really enjoyed that the analytical chemistry more than you anticipated. What, what just explain that a little bit? So, well, how it was taught the course, you know, um, it was you go in and learn about a particular technique and then you go and put it into practice in the laboratory. And I'm quite a methodical, logical person anyway. So, and I think analytical chemistry is very methodical and logical and so being able to analyze different things um yeah was really really interesting and then when I got my job as an applications chemist I was developing methods in um so you know, actually going backtrack um my my um my project for my analytical chemistry actually at Syngenta so the main project was an LCMS Mm -hmm. So liquid chromatography and mass spectrometry. And I was trying to improve ionization efficiency for the different um, chemicals that were made um, by 
Zenhar Agrochemicals at the time. And, um, and my minor project was on gas chromatography mass spectrometry, which again was actually looking at impurities to try and inject a very high concentration um, of sample the technical grade material to then be able to identify um, the impurities much, much easier and have much better sensitivity. And it happened actually to take on that the GCMS project became a much bigger project. And that was my main one. And I, I really enjoyed both techniques, but actually GCMS was the one I really enjoyed the gas chromatography mass spectrometry. Actually, the company that then I went to work for actually was selling um, GCMS instrumentation. So um, yeah, so I got to go and work in that area. Uh, first on the first day they said right here's a gas chromatograph uh, just go and install it yourself if it takes you two weeks that's absolutely fine uh, ask any questions you want but it, it was brilliant because I then got to you know kind of really know the instrumentation so I still do my own installations so it, it, even now and it also means that when I'm traveling especially to developing countries mm -hmm. um like for example last year I was working in Baghdad for, uh, for the United Nations the UN for two weeks um in two different laboratories um I was spending then a lot of my time training but on the other rest of the time was actually fixing their instrumentation in their labs because of course they don't have very much support um yeah so for example they've got you know one of those labs that I worked in they had one GCMS and there was 29 people who were relying on the results of it for drug analysis and they hadn't had their auto sampler working for two years they'd had to oh. be doing annual injections so it took me 10 minutes to fix it and train them how to fix it in the future so they can look after it themselves and um yeah so then it meant that they could analyze a lot more samples in a day which is brilliant especially when you have to they don't have any electricity at night so they had to in, shut down the instrument every night and restart it every day every morning which is crazy conditions to be working in but it's just really really exciting for me to be able to go and help people not only on their knowledge the fundamental knowledge of how the, the techniques work making sure and getting their methods to be much much better much more accurate um, but also as well helping on the kind of the maintenance side of it and the, the kind of, yeah, fixing problems and troubleshooting, which I very much enjoy doing. I bet. That sounds wonderful. You're here with me, Harriet Gould, for the Lab Matters podcast. If you like what you hear, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. Um, and I bet, they're, I bet they're thrilled as well. Like some angel shipped in for them. <laughs> They're like, don't go home. We need to just keep you here. But even labs in the UK said that to me as well. So I'm, I'm quite. After, <laughs> so you you set up that lab in Cambridge. You gone through. I don't know where you want to go next. Um, because you you do can you did some stuff with the Open University as well. Um. I don't, can we go there next? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I worked in that lab for about five and a half years. Um, and at that end of that time, it kind of came to a natural progression that um, I would move on. But the reason for me to move on was actually because I wanted to go to Fiji for six weeks to survey more coral reefs, which is quite exciting. So we'd actually been given that as a wedding present myself and my husband to go and do some volunteer work, um, mm -hmm. in Fiji. Who, who gave so. you that? um uh the so um through my my father so I'd met Coral Key Conservation which is a charity and when I was 16 so they came to Yelza Silly to work with my father so they started surveying the the seagrass and everything else over there and um so I got to know them and and then charity and that's how I ended up going to Belize for two weeks um to one of their expedition sites 
um, and then of course the Philippines for three months and then yeah so it's essentially the the owner of the charity um, sent, basically said yeah he yeah it's amazing present yeah a month in the <laughs> kind of uh, yeah you're working but it's you know we don't have to pay for your food or accommodation I'll just cover all of that and um, and you just get yourself your flight out there and stuff so that, that was very exciting so yeah so we ended up staying for six weeks and then when I came back from there I was just like right what I'm gonna do and I was fortunate enough to first of all the Open University approached me and said right we'd like you to come and work on our instruments here that you've been I've been working with them through my previous company for for a couple of years um, and kind of developing methods for them and they've actually gone and bought the instrumentation and they wanted to help setting it all up um, but also as well I had some several other people as well that basically wanted me to come do some work so one was a, a company that my husband had been working with they built an analytical instrument and they needed things like it testing and manuals creating and writing and all that side of things which engineers are brilliant at writing um making the instrumentation but actually teaching people how to use it is a kind of a, quite a different skill again so I yeah so I suddenly went right okay well to charge people and get paid I kind of need a company so I went to the Cambridge Enterprise Agency. Um, so this is, I was still in my 20s at this point, of course. Went to the Cambridge Enterprise Agency and went, oh, you're a woman wanting to start a company. We don't get many of you. This is great. This is only in 2005, which I don't think is particularly long ago, but obviously it is. And they went, wow, you're a female, want to start your own company. That's brilliant. We don't get many of you. And then they went, oh, if you're a woman wanting to start a scientific company, we don't think you've had any of you. <laughs> so therefore then they went right go away and write a business plan and I did and they came back and went that's the best business plan we've ever seen really you should just go for it and it's like 24 hours later I had a limited company so yes and my company is Amphius Consulting um, because um, at the time when we went to Fiji the best way to look after emails is to own a domain and keep your emails in there um, because it wasn't you didn't have smartphones or anything like that at the time especially on desert islands um, yeah, you could kind of get to a little cafe on one of the other little islands and get a computer and stuff and log in. So anyway, so what we'd been through the fish book and decided on the amphius.co.uk domain and bought that for our trip. So suddenly everything happened when I came back and I was just like, oh, can't be asked to think of a name for my company. Right. Check on company's house. Yeah. Amphius Consulting's available. Right. We'll just use that then. <laughs> Amazing. Um, most people would probably spend a little bit more time than that thinking, well, what should we call this business? Yeah, probably. I was just more excited you know, to actually be doing the work. <laughs> the, the most important thing. Yeah. Um, so anyway, so the Open University, fortunately, they said to me, uh, OK, when you start your own business, that's really great. If it doesn't work out, come back and we've got a job here for you. So um, nine months later, <laughs> they came back to me. Went, Obviously, your business is going quite well. Um, so you don't want this job, but could you just come back as a consultant? So that was in 2006. So, yeah, so I went back and, and there's basically been a consultant there ever since working on everything from space, um, analyzing. Well, at first I was doing a lot of method development for analyzing carbonaceous chondrites, which are a type of meteorite. Um, by pyrolysis, GC times GC TOF MS. Um, but then we got involved in all sorts of other types of projects etc so for example you know kind of um, food analysis environmental samples but also in tuberculosis um, and one area that uh, was actually um, 
in 2004, there was a picture, New Scientist, of a dog sniffing the crutch of King Charles um, because they basically proven with the dogs that they can smell the urine and determine if somebody has bladder cancer or not. So the AP University started working um, with well, they, they, they are medical detection dogs. They um, approached the AP University and started talking about then actually sniffing the profile of what the dogs were sniffing. Um, so I was asked to go and do some method development on that. And they've been for a little while going, you know, these projects that you're doing for us, why don't you just go and do a PhD? So I went, okay, I'll start my PhD. So that was in 2009. Okay, I'll do my PhD, started all the work. And my daughter was, my first daughter was born in 2010. So a year later. So it's very much of a, okay, um, I'm running a business. I'm doing a PhD and I have a baby. Oh, and also I was racing cars as well. So I raced cars and yes. So um, that's the thing. So I started, uh, yeah. Um, racing cars racing cars so sprinting cars so I've got a couple of really nice Toyotas um, I've got an MR2 turbo and a uh, sleeker GT4 WRC and so we do sprinting so it's against the clock so you don't have to worry about other people like being on the track at the same time and crashing into you although people do crash if they overcook it um, so yeah so um, I started racing cars probably about 2008 I think it was wow. um, as part of a sprint series um, which is really good fun what what um, they don't tell you is that you know kind of uh, pregnancy is not a medical condition so they can't stop you from racing when you're pregnant so I was still racing at seven months pregnant with my daughter no way. did a, a nice spin at 50 miles an hour in the gravel at one of the tracks that was quite funny um and yeah so uh, and then yeah and then I decided to stop after that because I was like seven months I couldn't really fit behind the steering wheel anymore right. anyway so it was a little bit difficult so yeah, so three weeks after I'd had my 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 daughter. Well, actually, so my I I spent so one of the difficult things, of course, is is working in chemistry labs when you're pregnant is very very difficult. So I decided to take the last month off, and I went back into the Isles of Scilly because I wanted my daughter to be born there. Just explain so, that. Just explain that a little bit. Why is it so difficult? So uh, difficult working in, in 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 labs when you're heavily pregnant. Um, I I think it's because you're not an employee you are going in as a consultant so that could be for a day or two or you know um, less than a week usually so trying to the the whole paperwork of doing that is very very difficult to come by mm -hmm. so um especially when you're so pregnant and you're usually spending a lot of time on your feet as well when you're teaching and fixing instruments um so it was just easier just to take that last month off and go back plus as well it just meant like I could go swimming sea every day and everything with my my parents so and I wanted my daughter to be born there problem was a few days two days before she was born um I got pre-eclampsia oh, no. and um on the Isles of Scilly um they have maternity so they have only a midwife led unit so therefore having pre-eclampsia they wanted me to go to a proper hospital so I went um but there was a bit of a storm um, even though it was the end of August, there was a bit of a storm. So there was no flying of the normal helicopters. So she goes, right, I need to get to you. So she phoned um, basically 999 for an, and asked for an ambulance. But the ambulance she asked for was actually a Royal Navy rescue helicopter, which then came to, yeah, came flew over to Yards of Silly. And I then had to, I think they, there's not very much that happens on Yards of Silly. So they all get very excited when they have to send somebody away. So we got two ambulances. 
Yeah, my husband had 10 minutes to run down the road to my parents' house, collect some clothes to then jump jump on the helicopter to then fly over to the mainland. Um, there was a bit of a storm. Um, there was fog as well. So the helicopter couldn't land in the normal place next to the, heli- um, the, next to the hospital in Truro. So it had to land on the cricket pitch and um so the ambulance is brand new and he's very 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 excited about um the ambulance being brand new but the cricket person was not very happy about the ambulance driver driving on the cricket pitch that was quite funny so anyways we drive flying through all the lights up to the hospital to find a whole camera crew up there and everything because David Cameron had been holidaying at the same time in Cornwall and his wife decided to start having their baby early so heavy security in the whole hospital, like, you know, you have almost have to show your passport to get in, etc. You know, loads of press outside. So anyway, so we go in and then, I don't know, it's just this, this chain reaction or something that suddenly everybody was wanting to have their babies. So therefore the whole maternity unit was actually full to bursting. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So anyway, and you, were, so, you probably weren't feeling particularly brilliant with preeclampsia, I imagine. I, I felt absolutely fine. There was nothing wrong with me. So I was just like, you're making your big fuss. There's nothing wrong with me. But anyway, <laughs> so my daughter was born successfully um, and it's absolutely fine. But it was a bank holiday weekend. So we kind of got stuck um, on the mainland. So at four days old, um, she had her first helicopter ride outside of my tummy, basically. So she got to go on a helicopter um, back to the city. And um, we stayed then um, another 10 days. And then she got to go on the Salonian, which is um, goes across from, which is a big, uh, basically a passenger ferry, which goes from Yarza Silly back to Penzance. That's 40 miles by sea, very, very rough. So she had her first trip on a boat then, uh, 10 days old. 11 days old, we went to National Trust property, met my gran. 12 days old, we got um, we got our home up to Cambridge and then we decided to go um camping at 14 days old at a car show with like a thousand cars and 1500 people so she got her first camping experience to 12 days old um and then it was kind of back to normal except I started racing cars again when she was three weeks old and then it was kind of like you drive around and um yeah you kind of like do your race, go back and breastfeed, do another race, go back and breastfeed. So you're doing all your laps, etc. But do you know what upsets a man more than by being beaten by a woman when driving? Being beaten by a pregnant woman. And so therefore, I um yeah, so I yeah, won trophies when I was pregnant driving with her and also with my twins, which who were born less than 18 months later. Wow. So yeah, so it's almost like Mother Nature saying. Having a single child is, uh, you found it too easy. Life didn't stop. You carried on. I worked. And that's the biggest problem, actually, is you don't really get maternity leave when you have your own company because you are employing people. You are responsible to making sure there's still money coming in. The people are getting paid. So you've got to do some work every day. And I did in hospital um, as well as kind of every day afterwards. So um, all my children are very, very independent. But yeah, so 18 months later. I then had, um, yeah, my my twins and I carried on race. Well, I had a race booked two days after I found out I was pregnant with twins. Um, and that was quite funny because I was just like, well, it's a high risk pregnancy. I'm not going to race this time cars. So, um, but I'd already booked this one. So I'm like, right, I'm just going to take it easy. It's going to be my last one. So I'd like stop there at the start line and then suddenly have terrible morning sickness, be jumping out the car, throwing up over the barriers, get all the <laughs> ambulance drivers laughing and all the blokes laughing at me, jump back 
in the car race round. That day I came back with two trophies. So I was very pleased with that. <laughs> one, one for each, one for each of the twins. One, one for each of the twins. Absolutely. They're all, all on board though. Absolutely. So so what so what stage were you at then? You you get you you gave birth to the twins, you you were still doing the PhD at that point and yeah, your company absolutely. still going strong? Yeah, yeah. So the company was still going, okay. And I was still, you know, kind of yeah, doing my part-time PhD as well. The biggest problem that I found is because of course it was self-funded PhD because of you know through my business, is that when you have time to do the PhD. You don't have as much money coming in because if you're not out training consultancy, then you're not earning money. Um, and then when you were earning money to pay for your PhD, you didn't have time to actually go and do the work. So it was very, very difficult. And it got to the point where actually, you know, I, to be honest, in the first two years, I got enough data. Um, I was so my PhD is on disease diagnosis. So bladder cancer, prostate cancer, hepatic disorders, but also do a project on sepsis as well. Um, and so I'd analysed about 3000 samples or something. So huge amounts of data. But it was then just finding the time to write up. And it was kind of getting to that point that I had to make a decision. Either I wasn't going to write up or I had to start straight away to do that. So I came to a compromise with my husband that I would write up every other evening and every other weekend. But I did have Saturday nights with my children in the house crying, going, mommy, please don't go and write your book. We, we, you know, we just want you to be here with us for a change. But, you know, I wrote, I think in that way, I wrote 50,000 words in five weeks. Wow. So because I really planned my work because I didn't have really a lot of time to mess around or anything. And um, yes, about 50,000 words in the first five weeks. And then I spent another two two months basically just getting all my data extracted and all written up. So, yes, I, I basically submitted it in time, which was brilliant. And I remember the morning that I printed off my three copies and my children all came to have a look and they were still quite young at the time. And they were just like, wow, mum, this is amazing. You know, it's just like they could see all the work that I'd done. And I think that's a really great life lesson for them, really, is that you have to make sacrifices. You have to work really, really hard to do everything and to achieve everything that you want to do. Um, so, you know, it's quite funny, actually, because the maximum number of words was 100,000. So mm -hmm. I wrote 100,000 words exactly. So it was quite funny. I love that um so wow newly 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 decorated um with a young family uh thriving business you, you'd almost think that you could just sort of settle into a coasting pattern maybe like just take a breather for a minute but but that wasn't necessarily what happened I you've um you've presided over you know interest groups and been and chaired the trust funds let's talk i don't know which one you which one which one should we go with should we go with the recycling organization and yeah i can start yeah. off with that so um trustee absolutely i mean so in 2016 i was encouraged from other people in the analytical community to actually stand for election on the analytical division council and to my surprise i was elected which is very exciting and at the time, I didn't have my PhD, so I was just a Mrs. Diane Turner, and I suddenly found myself in a council with lots of professors and lots of older men, 
and not very many women, which was quite surprising at the time. But, you know, it is so much improved since then. It's just incredible. And of course, part of that was also then becoming a trustee for the Analytical Chemistry Trust Fund. On another side was then uh, the Recycling Organisation for Research Opportunities, so RORO. Um, so one of my colleagues who've been doing some um, uh, consultancy for me, some contracting for my company, he um, basically ran RORO and he said, basically, with your experiences, then you'll be great to be as a trustee as well. So I became a, a trustee of RORO as well. So and I'm still a trustee of RORO, um, but in terms of the Analytical Division Council, I spent my three years as an elected member on numerous committees and really throwing myself into it um, and I really really enjoyed it. Towards the end of my 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 three three years I decided right I wanted to stand and become you know and, and really um, see if I could get elected again as a member of the council so I didn't you know because you can do two terms and then again the people who would encourage me the first time to stand up or then mentioned oh yeah what about becoming the standing for election for president I was like I will never win that. So I'm going to stay, still be on there as becoming an elected member, because hopefully that will happen. But also as well, I got nominated as the next president. And much to my surprise, I got elected. So thank you to all of those people who elected me as that, that next president. So um, that was in 2019. So I spent my year as president-elect. And then I was, um, and then COVID hit, of course. So right at the beginning of my presidency, my three-year term, uh, suddenly we were all thrust into COVID. Suddenly all the meetings became virtual. So um, I remember kind of a lot of meetings of discussing, right, how can we do our, um, you know, kind of the, the events that we'd normally do as in-person events. And of course, having an input into you know, all the kind of, uh, you know, kind of virtual events and, and then, of course, then the hybrid events that as well afterwards, such so as the very exciting that the RSC has continued that ability to do hybrid events, especially for those people who can't attend in-person events. So I was, yeah, so I was on that for, um, yeah, as the president for three years. And during that time, of course, we there's been all the changes to the prizes. So for me as well, there's very few. When I first was elected in 2016, there were very few people from industry actually on the council, um, even though there are more members in the division, which is now, of course, the community, actually from industry. So that's um, during my time going to that balance of 50, 50, you know, kind of 50 percent um, male, female, kind of more of a gender balance, but also industry versus academia has been brilliant and and just seeing all those improvements has been uh, yeah amazing and of course also then that that change from divisions through to com subject communities so that was a lot of extra meetings and of course also for the analytical science community I think what a lot of people don't realize is that there's so many other aspects compared to other communities so for example we have the regions the analytical division regions we have the analytical methods committee which is then fed in from the analytical methods trust um, and then we have the Analytical Chemistry Trust Fund, even though it's not part of the Royal Society of Chemistry, it's usually the elected members that become trustees. So we've kind of had a whole change in those ways of how our trustees are selected for the Analytical Chemistry Trust Fund and, and how everything kind of fits together as well. So um, during that whole change from divisions to communities, there was a huge amount to, to, um, to think about and to, to plan and organise, but it's very, very 
you know, very exciting thing to do. And I'm so glad that I got involved. And I think we've just come so far in the last few years um, and the Royal Society of Chemistry has. Um, and, and of course, also I, I'm, I'm on the Government Chemist Programme Expert Group as well. So I oversee the work. Uh, so that oversees basically the work of the Government Chemist. And again, that's the first time that, that someone had been asked to actually stand on that and represent the RSC on that. And I'm actually, even though I stepped down at the end of October this year, so I've finished in July and Zoe Ayres, the new president took over. I had a four month handover period. Um, and then, um, yeah, and then I'm, I'm still remaining on the GC peg as well. So when you say oversee the government chemists, can you talk a little bit about that and tell us tell us how it works? Absolutely. So um, essentially the, the, um, the government chemist is the referee lab. So for example, say um, some food is imported and the importers then have different results or the port authority have different results for what the, um, the the exporters from another country actually have. So that will go through then samples be analyzed by the re the, the referee, so the, the government chemist laboratory. Um, and then that is then what's used the results to go to court, et cetera. And that's so it's, make sure things are at the right standards yeah, absolutely. So also as well, they work on a lot of projects. It's trying to see, look forward to think about what new legislation is going to come in, what new trends are going to come in, what is going to be important. So um, there was a stakeholder meeting just over a year ago, and they've and that set up the, the priorities for the government chemists in terms of the projects and the newer types of analyses that we're going to be looking at. Um, so yeah, so it's 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 very exciting to be on that. Um, and to give feedback into that as well. Um, I mean, yeah, it's been a lot of discussions on their latest meeting um, a couple of weeks ago. And um, the work they do is amazing. And the work they do on the small budget that they have is absolutely incredible. So, and we are all very, very lucky because of course, without these, these methods they support the food standards agency and a lot of other government departments that are all working so hard to make sure that the food that we go and buy from our supermarkets is safe to eat and our drinks are safe to drink etc as well so yeah very lucky yeah it's um yeah it's great to get a little bit of an insight in that because it's not not necessarily something that goes through everyone's mind well it's certainly not mine absolutely on a, on a regular all, basis absolutely but all the documents are available on the government chemist website so you know there's even you know you can even get all minutes of the meetings etc so the non-attributed meeting um, minutes and it also shows you all the different people who are involved in the the um, government chemist program expert group as well so of course it's really important that all the different agencies feed into it but also as well independent people like myself who just look at it from a different perspective mm -hmm. i have to have to start looking things up in future Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it, it, you'd be well within your rights to retire, I think, um, after everything you've achieved and um, and done and, and had fun. And it just sounds so full and um, successful. Um, but I, I, I half suspect you're not on the brink of retiring, um, but I've got no idea what's next. Have you? No, I'm not sure what's next. I'm still doing a lot of outreach. Mm -hmm. So I was doing a careers event at um, my my local, so my children's secondary school last week. And I'm actually back there in March 
with the meteorites from the Open University. So everyone likes to hold a bit of Mars or a bit of the moon, etc. So I really enjoy doing the kind of outreach. And I think, you know, everyone really should be doing outreach, you know, kind of like talking about the exciting jobs that I do. Um, and, you know, I was like, working in a nuclear power station to kind of traveling to places like Baghdad and Kuwait and Trinidad and, and everything. And I just think about all the places that I've worked over the last year and the different um, types of applications and analysis, you know, kind of, and, and I mean, analytical chemistry is used in every single industry. And that's what I love kind of like going in to talk about careers. I say to people, right, everything in this room relies on analytical chemistry. So what career would you like to do? And I tell me, and I will then tell you how analytical chemistry is involved in that career. So and people are just like, really, wow. And they've never heard of analytical chemistry and how important it is. And, you know, I, and it, I mean, for me, it's like, you know, kind of, there's a shortage of analytical chemists really in this country. Um, and I think that's something that we really, really, you know, should be focusing on. Mm -hmm. So kind of looking forward, I'm not sure at the moment. I have said with the Royal Society of Chemistry that I am interested in being involved in different ways. Um, but I just need a year off because actually it's been a lot of time, um, over, especially over the last three years, you know, kind of like um, being, you know, there's a, there's a new group, the SILF group, um, which is a science and innovation leadership forum. So that was a new group with a, the change from divisions to communities, which I chaired on one session, of course, and attended other meetings as well as the members community board. So it's a huge number of meetings. Oh, and also the, um, I think it was at like a hundred prize nominations I reviewed this year as well. So that totals about oh, three. Maybe, so yeah, so I've just gone, right, I just need a year off see where I am and of course and think about you know kind of spending more time with my family I'm also my children they all swim so I'm also a judge for swimming so I'm just finishing off my J2 um, level so my judge level two on stroke so I spent all day Sunday and Saturday night last weekend at competitions and the previous week and the whole weekend at a different competition as well. So that takes over quite a lot of my my time is actually just going to spending it swimming competitions, uh, judging stroke, etc. and turns. So which is always exciting. And I know, Harriet, that you're really interested in swimming at the moment. So, <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah. So I think at the moment it's just, yeah, I think yeah um more enough to think about but then starting to look to the future your year off has actually in, involved becoming a, a swimming judge that's uh I've been, that's great yeah I've been a swimming judge now for several years actually oh, okay fine okay. <laughs> since yeah since I could as soon as possible after covid right. so that real kind of a shortage of officials at swimming competitions so again if you're listening to this and your child's involved <laughs> in swimming definitely think about going and becoming a yeah uh, uh, going and becoming an official because if I have time to do it I'm sure that you have time to do it too. oh god you make me feel guilty uh, <laughs> fine I'll look into it Dan, I promise. <laughs> it's, oh. actually, it's nothing like to improve your own swimming is watching and learning all the things what you're trying to kind of look for at competitions um in case of any infractions so yes noted I'll bear that in mind and look, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Um, I, I half expect you to come up with another book any minute now. Um, but and, and if and if you do, you must let me know. Okay, um, I am actually so that's one thing I've completely forgot to mention. So yes, yeah, so I am on um, the editorial board of the book 
a book series. So it's practical okay. guides for laboratory chemists. So we're looking at about, I think about 30 even more books. So I've been on the on, on the board for the last couple of years. Um, so as we've been getting it together. So again, so I think I had, only last week I had a meeting from with somebody else that I'd found as potential authors for another one, another book. So built the is for each um each technique in analytical chemistry it's really what you need to know for that technique. So um, again, so one of the things I didn't talk about was the Pan-African Chemistry Network, which of course I've been involved in through through the Royal Society of Chemistry for quite a few years now. Mm -hmm. And the book that we wrote was really to accompany that course. So if you think about in a developing country, people basically might have an instrument, they haven't got any resources, they haven't got a service engineer to come and help them. So therefore, what theory do you need to know and you know to understand the instrument the parameters they can develop the method um, put in quality control do maintenance do troubleshooting of the whole instrument so there's a whole package is that book so with the practical guides um, again the idea is that then for people who you know kind of like it's everything you need to know so it's not like a textbook from university that goes very heavily into the theory it's the theory that you need to know for actually running the instrument developing the methods um maintaining the instrument and also troubleshooting it as well so that's why there's a whole series with the ace a level books the a books basically the top level so like mass spectrometry chromatography the b books are kind of the technique like gcms lcms etc and then the c level books are actually using those application um those techniques for different applications so you've got several different layers in there so i'm planning to author some of some of those books in that series so yes that is my next thing to do well we'll, we'll look out for those and um thank you so so very much for taking some time out to to talk to me um and uh, tell us your story um, because I think well I've I've been completely blown away I can't I, I want to hear it again um, thank you very much Harriet and thank you for inviting me on it's a pleasure see you soon